0: All right, welcome to episode 94 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Christian Jarrett. He's a deputy editor of Psyche, a global digital magazine that illuminates the human condition. Uh, Christian has written about psychology and neuroscience for publications across the world, including BBC Future, Wired, New York Magazine, New Scientist, GQ Italia, and The Guardian. He was the founding editor and creator of the British Psychological Society's Research Digest, presenter of their PsychCrunch Crunch podcast, and an award-winning journalist on The Psychologist Magazine. His books include The Rough Guide to Psychology and Great Myths of the Brain. Today, we'll be talking about his newest book, Be Who You Want, Unlocking the Science of Personality Change. Welcome, Christian.
1: Hi, thank you very much for having me.
2: Thank you so much for coming on. And so I mean fundamentally I guess the sort of the most important I think question to begin with is what is personality and why would you why should we even consider trying to change it?
1: Yeah, good question. So personality is as I understand, I understand it the way personality psychologists and scientists look at it so I see it as our habits of thought, our habits of behavior and emotion and ways of relating to other people and relating to the world. It plays out over the long term. So obviously our behavior varies from one situation to another, but our personality is is our average sort of tendencies over the longer term. And I think we should care about it and think about changing it because there's a lot of evidence suggests our personality traits are related to our future health, our future career success, future happiness, Uh, you name it, personality usually correlates with it in the future. So um, it's worth considering.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and when you go back into kind of earlier versions of psychology and psychiatry, the idea was well, you know, forget about really changing or even focusing on personality. So, according to Freud, obviously, the idea was that personality was pretty much stifled after the age of seven. Like, that was it. The person you were by that point, like, you were kind of screwed, and the most psychoanalysis could really do for you. What?
0: Yeah, and even William James said, uh, by age 30, you've already developed. Your, your psychology. Which is honestly more
2: generous thing. than Freud, right? Because yeah. for Freud, it was literally by age seven. So the most psychoanalysis could literally do for you is just help uncover some of these repressed memories. And hopefully through catharsis, right? Now you're somehow kind of cured, even though you're still the same kind of asshole you were since you were a kid, right? Like there's nothing you could do about it. So how, well, Christian, when did when did sort of psychology shift, right? When did the shift happen? For, well, I guess, what is the trajectory uh, from, let's say age seven, from the Freudian kind of framework to now William James, age 30, to now like, oh, no, you can actually be adult and still change some of these habits. Like, how did that happen?
1: I I would say I would, I feel like it's just the last couple of decades, maybe. It's really taken off this idea of personality being more malleable. For, For a long time, through the second half of the last century, there was like this big battle between the situationists, you know, who said our behavior is all explained by the situation that we're in, really. And then the trait theorists who said, no, it's all about these fixed traits. And they kind of were arguing it's one or the other. And I, I would say there's a consensus in the field kind of settling on a recognition that, it's, of course, it's it's both. You know, you get this interaction and this idea that um, personality traits are relatively stable, but they're not fixed. So it's it's not necessarily a very satisfying answer to people who want to. You know, you, you get these, some people come out with like uh, this idea that personality is a myth. Like they want to kind of explode the concept entirely, you know, that it's a nonsense. And from everything I looked into the, all the research I delved into, that's not true. You know, we can't go that far. Personality is a, is a real genuine concept. We do tend, most of us will tend to have, you know this thread of continuity in our lives and our general disposition and so on. But it's it's not set in stone. Um, and when you know, even later in life it's not set in stone so you know contra William James and definitely uh, contra Freud um, you know you do see you do see an evolution in people's traits through life and and I think that's before you even become intentional about it you know so that, that's what really intrigued me is like if there is the potential for change well then what if you actually start being more intentional and deliberate about it you know maybe you can um, amplify that
2: Potential for
0: change. Yeah, and I, I'm aware that in uh, neuroscience, and please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that by age 25, uh, the prefrontal cortex finishes uh, forming, or around that age, and generally, that's been touted as um, an explanation for how personality is sort of uh, fixed after that, and very little things can, you can be done to change it. But um, you're, you're saying that that's not necessarily true; that you could still uh, change it throughout your, your lifetime, right?
1: Yeah, well, the, the the personality research suggests you still get changes right the way through life. I, I would think probably the potential for change is probably greater. I'm sure it is younger. So I, I think you, you get the most sort of personality dynamics and changes mm-hmm. in traits through adolescence and early adulthood. That happens naturally. Right. Uh, but and of course, you're you're right. The the maturation of the brain sort of starts to level off, like mid twenties or what have you. But it doesn't, you know. Uh, of course, our brains don't stop changing. Um, mid twenties. Right. That you know that we can carry on learning, and um, we we can carry on changing in, in different ways uh, through life. At, yeah, at a neurological level, but but yeah, not the 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 era of kind of peak plasticity would be, I would say adolescence, yeah, and early adulthood.
2: Yeah. And speaking of learning, it's always interesting to me when people tell me, like, I get this a lot from some of my own kind of family members, where they'll say something, well, you know, I am who I am, like, I can't help it. This is sort of just like biologically, genetically, environmentally who I became. So to me, that doesn't really make much sense. Because if we're conceptualizing learning as adaptation to one's environment, and let's say, you know, your environment changes over the years, right? So uh, let's say you grew up in a really difficult, like adverse kind of like household, Um, let's say, you know, struggles with parents or whatnot, you know, let's say you you felt invalidated. find yourself in the new environment, I mean, my thinking is, is, as an organism, and I'm sure this is true on average, I don't think it's exactly true for everybody. But my thinking is, as an organism, it might take you some time to adapt to the new environment. But if you're learning, and you're dealing with these new situations that are vastly, hopefully, vastly different from your childhood, it doesn't make sense to me that your personality would be stagnant, right? Because eventually, you're going to get some, um, some kind of like, uh, let's say, negative feedback from the environment, where eventually, you're kind of seeing that, oh, shit, like these personality traits, which were once really protective, right? So, so let's say, you know, if uh, mom would yell at me, I would get really defensive and I would argue back. Um, if like, you know, dad would try to kind of like hit me or something like, you know, I'd run away and I'd kind of hide or I'd sort of isolate myself in my room. And then you see kind of in this new environment and then this new context, right? These personality traits are not even, they're not helpful or conducive to survival, but also they're maybe maladaptive because the people in your life, like they, they, they kind of take it personal and they're like, Hey, you know, you never come out of your room or you don't want to talk to me. Um, let's say, or, you know, I try to tell you, you know, something that's bothering me, and you get really defensive. My idea is like, how is it possible then to consider the organism as not being willing to adapt, especially if those survival techniques were there in the beginning, literally to help you, well, maybe not thrive, but to help you survive and to help you kind of move on. And so like, why wouldn't you then automatically want to learn from the environment? And again, I'm not saying that everybody does this, but just the whole argument of like, well, you know, I am who I am, and these are always my traits. It just doesn't make sense again, because I think the organism is meant to learn and meant to adapt to its environment. So I mean, what do you think, Christian?
1: Yeah, I I would say that's very similar to my thinking and what what I uncovered when I was writing the book, very similar. Um, You know, we know that the brain doesn't sort of stop changing (laughs) like uh, early in life. We know, know, so we know at neurological level it continues to change. We know, uh, you know, um, the personality survey studies that measure people's uh, personality test scores right through life. And there's more and more of those coming out, like the longitudinal studies, they show these trait changes right through life. And, and I agree, it's like why, why, it's almost more magical thinking to think you're suddenly kind of crystallized uh, and set in stone. And there's actually, um, I think it was out of Dan Gilbert's lab, something he called, I don't know if you come across this, like, uh, the end of history illusion, where they, mm, they asked participants like, yeah, how much have you changed in the last decade? and people reflect and they say they've changed quite a lot in the last decade. And then you ask them to forecast how much are you gonna change in the next decade? And they say, I'm not gonna change at all. <laughs> and so it still seems right. to be uh, yeah, a kind of a bias that we have that we think, however we are now is the kind of settled me, settled version of me. And of course, why would it be? You know, you, you, most of us realize that we've changed in the, in the past and of course, uh, most likely we will again in, in the future Um, I would say probably one thing that feeds into like the lack if there is a lack of change it's probably because as we get older we get our environment tends to become more stable and predictable you know we we get into routines and grooves of life we might stay living in the same area same group of friends so if everything around you stays the same and the demands on you are very similar um, there won't be a need to adapt you know how you were talking Leon, about we have this capacity to adapt. But if, you know, if everything kind of around you settled, then you're less likely to change. But that doesn't mean you haven't got the capacity to
2: change. Yeah. Yeah, go for
0: it. Oh, and uh, for our audience, uh, could we um, highlight what the big five are?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So there's openness to experience, uh, how how willing you are to um, try out new things. Consider alternative views, how aesthetically sensitive you are. So that's openness to experience. Extroversion, introversion, you know, very similar to how we use it in every, everyday talk. Um, except in personality psychology, extroversion is also, uh, it's kind of related to how active you are as well. It's not just how sociable, it's kind of how active, how willing you are to take risks, um, and, and how drawn you are to reward. Um, there's conscientiousness, which is to do with how ambitious and industrious you are and self-disciplined and orderly. Uh, there is agreeability, trait agreeability, um, which is uh, obviously how warm and friendly you are, but also how kind of trusting you are of other people and whether you expect, uh, well, whether you see the best in other people. And then there is uh, trait neuroticism, which is like the opposite of resilience and emotional stability. So if you're highly neurotic, you're, you're prone to mood swings, you're more, you're more prone to negative emotions, like guilt and shame and worry and anxiety and and what have you.
0: Do you do you uh, feel or think that uh, neuroticism is um, the most troublesome of the traits? And um, uh, could you maybe talk about um, ways to sort of uh, reduced neuroticism I feel like that's a that's a big issue for um, a lot of people
2: yeah yeah most definitely definitely for us so definitely in certain context
0: so <laughs>
2: yeah
1: yeah I would from everything all the, all the research I did and all the experts I contacted and, and so on I would say yeah trait neuroticism seems to be yeah the, the of all the traits is the one where if you score highly on that it's hard to see much good much positive in that um, because it is associated with greater risk of being diagnosed with mental health problems and um, like anxiety and depression and people who score highly in neuroticism tend to um, find themselves in more stressful situations you know they have more relationship problems and what have you and actually surveys asking people which aspects of themselves they would most like to change I think it's neuroticism is nearly always the one that most people wish they could change to have uh, lower their score yeah um in terms of ways i noticed like do... one
0: of those oh
1: yeah no go ahead sorry
0: oh sorry uh uh actually you were about to get into it right I- i'm sorry uh <laughs> yeah i remember one of the ways you mentioned was um uh, like gratitude journaling for instance and um and sorry to cut you off if you were going to say something else yeah
1: yeah i was just going to maybe reflect on a few of the suggestions yeah uh, for how to deal with trait neuroticism well actually i mean basically a lot of psychotherapeutic techniques that's in fact that's effectively what they're doing i think um that you know there was a cool study came out quite recently where uh the researchers found all these studies like clinical psychotherapy studies where they had measured personality traits before and after psychotherapy and just sometimes just a few weeks of psychotherapy seemed to be enough to uh, significantly reduce people's trait neuroticism levels wow. so because after all in psychotherapy a lot of the time you're being taught emotional regulation skills so you know if, if anyone wants to lower their trait neuroticism I think there's definitely capacity to do that by learning a lot of these uh, self-care and emotional regulation techniques that, that, that are out there now um, yep. that come from like CBT or acceptance and commitment therapy these kind of things, um, you know, an example might be like just something like reappra- cognitive reappraisal, like uh, trying to learn to uh, evaluate your, um, so if you have very you know, anxious, stressful feelings, you can try and maybe reevaluate them as excitement, for example, um, something called affect- affective labeling, simply lab- learning to practice to label your emotional feelings, there's evidence suggests just the act of doing that can help, uh, you know, to reduce the intensity. Um, cognitive break, kind of cognitive brain training. Um, it sound, it might sound a bit weird, but they are like these brain training tasks you can do, um, which feel quite removed from emotions. But by developing your kind of mental uh, attention skills, your ability to kind of control what you focus on there's evidence that uh, over time with enough practice at these kind of attentional training tasks, it helps people reduce their levels of worry and what have you probably because they've got kind of more control over their own thought processes. Um, So there's, there's like a ton of activities and exercises I think people can do, which is to sort of change themselves if you like from the inside out, you could say. But then I think it's definitely worth considering outside in strategies um so there's something it sounds pretty simple but there's something like called the situation selection strategy which is just being a lot more mindful of like when you have a weekend coming up let's say being a lot more mindful of you know what situations are you going to place yourself in if you have if you have freedom of choice you know if you have the choice. so, being more intentional about that, the kind of situations that make you, you know, where you feel um, happier emotionally or you're, you know, you're less stressed. Um, even just think about your relationships, friendships. And, you know, you, if, if you can, I mean, it's obviously tricky in a pandemic and what have you, but I'm, there are some more radical things you can try. Like, there's evidence that people who, like young, uh, stu- young students who go and spend time living abroad, when they come back, they have lower. Trait neuroticism, maybe because you know they've they've challenged themselves and they've um, mixed up their routines. And when they get back home, maybe every they've sort of recalibrated. Maybe and you get back home and normal life feels less less threatening. Maybe um, so yeah. I mean, obviously not so easy in COVID, but um, yeah. You, you about, yeah, that's yeah. You could kind of think about more ambitious things you can do to. Challenge your neuroticism as well as the more subtle, like mental side.
2: Mm. Yeah. And something that we often talk about, which is like, um, it's, I guess it's a piece of advice, maybe not necessarily only from him, but definitely comes from him, from Joe Rogan, where the idea is that you kind of have to keep challenging yourself. So for a lot of people who have, um, so like a lot of my clients who have, uh, let's say high levels of neuroticism, what they often find, and by the way, I find this like in my own life personally, too, when I have one problem, and I'm like, really, really stressed out or worried about it, right? Then let's say somewhere down the line, another one comes up. And I'm like, man, you know what, I wish I had that problem again. (laughs) So what like, Joe Joe Rogan would recommend is essentially like go do hard and difficult things. Like go out and do the hard tasks that like kind of make you worry and make you feel like you might fail and make you feel like you're not going to do well with them. Because the idea is if you can conquer those tasks, whatever they are, obviously it's different for different people. But when you go back to your own life, the idea is like now your life isn't so scary anymore, which happens anyway, I guess, sort of naturally because, you know, more difficulties kind of come about. But the idea is it's a great way, I think, of challenging your neuroticism, because if you could put yourself in a difficult situation, feel like you can master it, then all of a sudden life becomes less scary. Obviously, it's not as simple as just that, you know, you probably need some support and some help and somebody to kind of guide you through it and motivate you unquestionably. But I think the idea is like a lot of that worry comes from, and I often say this to my patients, right? That the idea is that a lot of the worry comes from tasks that you could easily do, right? And it's obviously hard to convince them of that. So, you know, we kind of do like these experiments, but the idea is that like, if you put yourself in these like difficult situations, again, life becomes a little bit less threatening and less challenging.
0: Right. and An example from uh, Christian, from your book, um, for instance, as opposed to saying, I'm going to write a book right. today or something like that. And it seems like this daunting, overwhelming task. Uh, maybe I'm going to write for 30 minutes today. And and it's a different, you're sort of um, setting a, a different sort of goal, more achievable goal. Right. And it doesn't, it's not this daunting thing. You, you, you take it one step at a time, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. So,
2: it's, yeah, we talk about that, too. All right? And, and Alan loves the winner effect, right? You want to talk about that?
0: Oh, yeah. No, yeah, it's That's fantastic. Yeah, super relevant, uh, yeah. If, if you find yourself um, actually doing what you set out to do, right. um, you I mean, it depends on your own uh, value set. You'd have to consider it a win, quote unquote, right? But if, if you determine that this thing that you were supposed to do or that you set a goal for that you do it, it will give you more confidence, right. then you start to um, stack uh, wins upon wins, you, you, these little tasks, and then confidence goes up, uh, performance goes up, you'll also tend to go into uh, flow states more often, yep. such and such.
2: Yeah, Yeah. And then so Christian, like, and I I would even pose this question for you too. So if we know, right, that all of this is sort of doable, right? That Mm -hmm. really, if we're thinking about personality, a lot of it is based on our belief systems, how we kind of interpret the world, how we interpret our own skills, uh, the skills that we actually have, right? Why do you guys think people are so resistant to the idea that personalities can actually change? Like, do you guys think it's sort of loss aversion and the sort of, you know, kind of difficulty of letting go parts of the self because maybe it feels like, I don't know, symbolic death or something along those lines? Or do you think something else is going on
0: i feel like you said okay (laughs) well christian what do you think
1: yeah i think maybe it's a bit sort of um unsettling to think that yeah to see to see each other as um too changeable maybe yeah like yeah a bit unnerving and um it's how we sort of navigate our social lives don't you reckon you know we we very quickly kind of pigeonhole each other and it allows us to predict, doesn't it? Sort of predict how people will behave and uh, put pe- put each other in boxes. It's like a shorthand, like a heuristic, I suppose. So I think maybe that's part of it. Um, I guess maybe for people who are happy with themselves the way they are, they don't, <laughs> they don't want to see personality as too malleable as well. Um, So yeah, maybe that's it. And I I know we're we're kind of taught that you think from quite an early age, you know, that like a leopard never changes its spots and all that kind of thing. It's like, it's part of a culture, like, maybe.
0: Yeah, yeah, I feel like uh, we we tend to react to anything that exceeds our expectations. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a sense, if something is novel right? Okay, that's different. Okay. Sometimes you'll you'll take that in, you get a sense of awe and all that. But I suppose when dealing with people, and they act outside of their expectations, you'll tend to react and resist that. Or if you act outside of your own expectations of yourself, um, you also will not feel as uh, so comfortable until you get used to habituating those um, new characteristics or new behaviors, and and all that. I also feel like it uh, violate it violates your own sense of identity. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, if if you have a, an attachment to being a certain way, yep. Um, anything that exists outside of that uh, reality or outside of that uh, expectation of yourself is going to feel extremely uncomfortable, and you'll experience um, resistance to changing. Yeah. Um, but counterintuitively, um, getting used to that discomfort is going to be uh, better uh, for you uh, in the long run.
2: Yeah, and you know, and I'm assuming that like both of you guys have come across this too. That a lot of times when people are high in neuroticism, I've certainly been guilty of this. They think to themselves, "Well, you know what? This sucks, and I know that this kind of harms my physical health and mental health and whatnot. But it's pretty much just a great survival tactic. Like if I didn't worry all the time, right? All of these great things, maybe not great things, but I wouldn't survive, right? So maybe even great things, but I wouldn't sort of, uh, I wouldn't have these things in my life because essentially, you know, I. I dead or whatever it is, or, you know, I would have been put in really embarrassing situations and I would have been or had my reputation ruined, whatever it is, right? So it's like, if I weren't defending myself, like, yeah, it sucks. Again, I miss out on opportunities. However, it's the best case scenario, because look at how safe I am, right? So Christian, what would you say to somebody who says that, who says, you know what, I actually don't want to change. This works for me.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, there is, I I've come across research that suggests, yeah, a lot, a lot of chronic warriors, they have these, exactly the kind of beliefs you're describing. They, they think, worry is useful and it protects them and um we actually uh, next week on, on psyche our guide that we're publishing next week is by a um one of the pioneers in metacognitive therapy and one of the <clears> things <throat> she talks about yeah is addressing her clients beliefs about worry and mm-hmm. um yeah challenging this idea that it's actually ben- beneficial to worry and um I think I, I I can relate to that. I would I would say I'm a you know I see myself as a warrior, and, but uh, but I'm trying to change and uh, worry less. And yeah, and it is a it is a funny thing because it feels a bit like a yeah like a safety harness. Like if you've always done it and like yeah, what if I? Um, I mean to, to to kind of focus in on a very specific example, like if someone's scared of flying, and they think, but if I stop, if I, if I get complacent and I stop worrying about taking the flight then that will be the time that, that something goes wrong. Yes. Um, so um, but yeah, on the positive side, you know, there's the, the trials with, for example, metacognitive therapy suggest people really can learn to change their relationship with worry. So, um, you know, there's reason for optimism with, with changing these things. Um, I think, can I just quickly go back to your question about like, why do we, another reason why we believe, you know, a lot of us, the personality is more fixed is, as well, I think maybe it um, our whole kind of justice system like, is connected to that, you know, we lock people away for many years, don't we, who've done something wrong, this idea of you know, bad people and good people. And I think that all feeds in, into this need to see people's personalities as pretty much fixed. And we, and we like to think of our heroes, uh, you know, who we, who we idolize as deeply good you know, so they therefore and and then yeah. that's why I think sometimes there's so much shock, you know, when it when a supposedly you know brilliant person does something bad, you know, transgresses. Um, but some of the stories I look at in in my book, you know, of uh, yeah. was like take someone like Tiger Woods or whatever, you know, he's like he, he's you know he's got these incredible personality, you know. Uh, virtues I suppose of conscientiousness and what have you at one part of his life and then he later in life shows the complete opposite but then he seems to bounce back again <laughs> so it just kind of you know shows this kind of uh, meandering path I suppose that personality can take um, but it can be disorientating and it's like uh, w- when you're going to get married you know um, you like to think the person you're marrying is going to be the same person like five years ten years time it would be very it's orientating if we were maybe overly aware of capacity for change, because be, it's like maybe who are marrying now that I'm going to be married to someone else in 10 years, 20 years time, but which is kind of true to an extent, but uh, un- quite unnerving in some ways.
0: Yeah, uh, I remember in your book, you used the example of Monica Bellucci and her husband, and they were this uh, star uh, couple. Uh, they were great together. Uh, but then after, I forget how many years of marriage, uh, I forgot if it was 15 or 25, forgive me. Uh, but, um, yeah, uh, after, after they had, uh, separated both, uh, Monica Bellucci and her husband went through a, a very dramatic personality changes. Uh, she found herself, if I, if, if I'm not mistaken, she found herself more, uh, agreeable before she was more, um, Uh, rigid in her personality and then she decided to change and then uh something similar happened with her husband as well and it was sort of related to the trauma of divorce that caused that sort of radical shift in their personality
1: yeah i think he he like relocated uh to a different area and yeah she she said um and i think if i remember correctly as well yeah she's like she felt this huge release (laughs) i think um, um so yeah, yeah, that, yeah, I look at, um, because, yeah, yeah, maybe something we haven't mentioned is obviously major life events, like life experiences. It, there's, um, the research suggests can really catalyze some quite rapid personality change. And of course, divorce, divorce is one of those kind of major life events.
0: And um, also, uh, I remember an anecdote about Robin Williams in your book, how, how sort of uh, disease can also radically change your personality. Um, uh, I believe he was uh, diagnosed with um, Parkinson's. Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so um, he went from being this um, energetic, uh, wacky, fun uh, guy to someone who became like he he lost his he, for example what made him a comedian, uh I, if I remember correctly he forgot how to be funny, like there were there was something in him that had had changed that yeah. he felt had changed within him. Yeah. He also became uh, sort of um, more anxious, uh, started having more headaches and all of that, and uh, the pain of that also uh, caused his personality to change. Yeah. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah, and you see that kind of a lot with um, uh just I mean not just celebrities obviously, but you see that a lot with people who suffer from like uh long-term mental illness. So I mean, he was really depressed, right? Like from before. It's just it seemed like that kind of set him over the edge. Like that was like the thing that finally like comedy was like his coping mechanism, and then I think after like he was diagnosed with Parkinson's, like he just had no joy for anything, not even that. Like the coping mechanism wasn't even important anymore. So mm. Yeah, I mean, you kind of find that I think a lot of times with people, unfortunately, they lo- they lose their kind of will to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think he had this specific form of dementia he developed, uh, Lewy body dementia, I think, which is particularly associated with this real radical personality change. And yeah, it was something I wanted to look at in the book was not just you know uh, positive personality change, but just being realistic about. The effect that illness, physical illness, and mental illness, and and and, uh, neurological disease can have on personality, and I suppose partly it was reinforcing for me because often I think personality can seem so abstract. You know, like what you know, what is it really? And if if you you know, by reading about the neurological basis of it, you know, realizing that personality has a biological basis, well, then if if someone gets uh, a brain disease or brain injury or what have you, it's, it, it, it's almost inevitable then the personality is going to be affected. And that, that's exactly what I found with some of these stories and research studies. So um, just like there's evidence that uh, effective psychotherapy can have positive consequences for personality change, the flip side to that is if someone falls ill with dep- you know serious depression, Again, you, you, there's evidence of harmful personality changes and some um, accounts people have written of their own depression or what have you, you know, they say it's like their personality just totally changed, it was transformed. You know, they weren't the same person anymore while, while they were depressed.
2: Yeah, and the famous example that kind of like we talk about from time to time is the Phineas Gage one, where you had this guy, right, who was like this pretty agreeable human and pretty – I think he was like a like a pretty big um, – I'm not sure if he was like a leader in the community, but he was definitely somebody very sort of well kind of regarded into his community. And then all of a sudden he gets this iron rod struck through his head and then he just becomes a huge asshole. And it's like, obviously it's like the pop side kind of version of personality change, but it also, it's true, right? Apparently, you know, whatever from the anecdotal stories. And it's so interesting how something like that could happen that you would think that I, by the way, so this is like an interesting question for me, right? Why do you think that it's so easy for human beings to disassociate the soul or like the mind from the, brain and to say, well, you know, here's this like spirit or this like, um, this kind of like little dude in the, you know, kind of the cell, right. And this is the personality, this is the person that you are. And here are all of these different organs that, you know, the personality and somehow kind of it somewhat kind of controls, but it's not really affected by them. So how come Christian, why do you think that it's so difficult for us to kind of distinguish? well, for us not to distinguish the brain from the mind and to say that, well, you know what, it's actually like this little, um, whatever you want to call it, like this little sort of being in the brain that kind of controls the kind. of of organs or the bodily organs but yet somehow the brain isn't affected or i'm sorry somehow the mind isn't affected by the brain
1: yeah do you mean like how where a lot of us are resistant to the idea that we're purely biological bodies and <laughs> well i think that yeah or,
2: I- or at the very or well, at the very least, that the body can affect your personality, right? That you aren't just a sort of spiritual. I, I, I hesitate to use the term spiritual because I'm not saying there is no spirit or whatnot. I mean, I don't necessarily obviously believe in it. But just to say that, yes, that at the very least that your brain or your organ, you know, the one that uh, kind of, I guess, in some way you see through, right, that's the thing that can actually affect, you know, whatever the spirit is or whatever you consider yourself to be, you know, kind of deep down or essentially.
1: Yeah, well, I think so many people like to believe we're more than just our bodies and our brains don't they so it's i think there's this deep-seated resistance to um you know seeing, seeing like seeing our psyches and our emotions and our personalities reduced to biological processes i think um yeah if that's if that's what you're getting at yeah i i would think that's why just because it's it's rather maybe depressing or existential to think that there were no more than our bodily makeup. Um, yeah. I would think, <laughs> think that's my hunch. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah the, the only um, thing I could think of where uh, it sort of makes to sort of diso- uh, makes sense to dissociate between um, you know who someone is and, and their personality maybe is uh, maybe somebody in the grips of addiction. Uh, For example, uh, someone I've encountered uh, people before who were um, addicted to whatever drug, let's say, and um, because they're addicted, they have that physical dependence, all that, their personality um, shifts and and changes dramatically. They would do things that um, wasn't characteristic of that person before they were addicted. And then after they stop taking the drug or they aren't addicted anymore they kind of return to that sort of uh, whatever was their baseline personality before right. so maybe maybe if i had to think of how it would make sense to do that maybe if you're encountering someone in the grips of addiction you'd have to have that sort of um good faith let's say that you know who they are is still it's possible for them to return to You know um who they were before they were addicted or at least get rid of that addiction and that those bad personality traits would go away but otherwise yeah biological it is you know what what can you do your your body does affect the mind and yeah yeah and
2: it's also i think people do that with alzheimer's and dementia too where they tell themselves well that's not really the person
0: well i mean at that point i see that's that's one where it feels nuanced enough to say okay no at that point yeah. That's, that's what their current, um, that's, that's where their mind is going to be, or it's going to deteriorate more. Right. And, you you know, you, that's a different story. But yeah. I, I, I think that that then is, is a good example of how um, biological processes definitely affect who you are for Yeah. Sure.
2: And, and it would be yeah. that in that case, like that's like a pure example of loss aversion in terms of personality where you can, you, I think it's easy to sort of spot to say that, well, you know, I don't want to think of like grandma or whomever, right. As this like, you know, kind of person who has like no real personality has no real sort of traits. So therefore for me, right. To say that, well, yes, it's easier. I mean, because this is like a psychological process. It's obviously, I mean, hard to describe without saying like unconscious, uh, which I don't really like to use too often, but the idea here is that, I mean, there is some sort of innate process, which kind of causes us to think, well, that's not really grandma, or even you could go further and say, well, grandma's somewhere inside there, but like, you know, the organ or whatever is preventing the personality from kind of shining through. But the idea there is that it's also like a kind of innate loss aversion to say, like, I'm so afraid of considering my grandma in this way that I can't, I just can't get myself to see her in this way or in this light, because it's like uh because it maybe scares me, right? It scares me to think of her in this way. It scares me to think of myself in this way because now I see it in my family. Oh my God, like what if I somehow, you know, get diagnosed with dementia and then I'm not this person anymore. So it's like, it's akin to kind of like a spiritual death where the idea is that we'd rather see, I mean, this is sort of a pure hypothesis, but I do think that we'd rather see our personalities, at least in some context and maybe even some of the time, if not all of the time, I think we'd rather see them as rigid and kind of malleable because then the idea is that like, okay, on the one hand, it's nice that maybe I could share Change my personality but on the other hand right if i'm phineas gage and you know i have a rod you know pushed through my head or you know if i get diagnosed with dementia right i'm kind of it's out of my control so the loss of these characteristics is now is now now not fully in my grasp so maybe i'd rather think of myself as this rigid self or soul or whatever than accept that oh shit i could actually lose part of myself without literally my own volition
1: yeah i guess some of what you're saying speaks to well obviously the question about what what makes us us you know um so what am I, am I Am I? just the totality of my personality traits? And I guess, I think um, something I try and argue in the book really is that of, although our personality traits are obviously a key part of who we are, they're not the whole story. And there's probably a good case to be made that maybe more profound than our traits is things like our value system, you know, our, our values and goals, our morality, even our aesthetic tastes and our humor and all this kind of, you know, there, there's a whole other, there are other aspects to the self. And I suppose partly what I'm trying to argue in the book is actually don't you don't need to let your personality traits as defined by personality science get in the way of you becoming the kind of person you want to be and living the life you want to live. Like in line with your values and so on, you because you because you can change the traits, and you you're more than your traits, so so you can still be the same person. You know who has those goals and values and principles. Uh, you can still be that same person and just in, uh, tweak and enhance your traits to help you actually live more in line with who you really are. And to go back to I guess like the the example of like Alzheimer's and what have you, where there's obviously like such tragic loss of self in many ways. But, you know, there is some quite heartwarming research that finds some continuity of self um, Things in things like aesthetic tastes seems to be preserved. You know, you get these islands of uh, preservation that, that seem to survive. And and even in the pleasure of doing, I, I've, I've read this research, you know, that some people with uh, dementia, you know, they still find pleasure in similar activities or situations. Whether it's, I don't know, um, being around young kids. Let's say, you know, playing with young kids. If they, if they used to be a uh, a primary school teacher or something, or or a midwife or whatever it might be, um, you still you can. There's there's still some element of the self that survives. And that's kind of separate from personality traits as described in the, like the big five and so on. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to think about well, what makes a person who they really are. And it, yeah, personality is only part of it in a way.
0: I'm, I'm happy you, you brought up um, that actually because uh, there's this part in your book where, um, or actually I should just bring this in a question. Um, how, how would you sort of uh, reconcile um, being authentic um, and versus um, attempting to change your personality? Because I, I remember earlier on in uh, one of the uh, chapters in the book, um, some people consider, you know, because being authentic is being true to yourself, right? And who you consider yourself to be, uh, that some people experience a sort of tension because they feel like they're being fake, you know, quote unquote, um, attempting to change their personality. Uh, w- what would you say to that?
1: Well, very, first of all, I'm very sympathetic to that uh, concern. You know, I, I would feel the same way myself. I ha- I've had those thoughts, my, you know, with my own situation. And uh, I've been encouraged, I suppose, in that respect, as, as I was researching for this book, by quite a few findings that suggest, for example, that people f- actually feel most authentic or true to themselves when they've been acting in ways that are in line with the kind of person they want to be. Or that they aspire to be, which I think is quite interesting, you know, uh, quite interesting when you think about it. And similarly, in like personal relationships, people tend to uh, feel more authentic in uh, romantic personal relationships when they're with someone who makes them feel like the person they aspire to be. So um, I guess it raises questions about like, who is the, again, like, who is the real you? Is the real you like, this idea you have in your head is the fixed you of the past or is the real you, the person you aspire to be and you wish to be. And I, I mean, I would take there is a kind of a valid uh, reasonable case for saying, well, you know, the real you is obviously the person you strive to be, because that's, that's what matters to you. That's what means something to you. And, and anyway, the idea of kind of some fixed past real or actual kind of fixed self is, somewhat magical and false anyway so maybe the authentic you as i say is like what you're striving towards and um yeah so that that's kind of what i argue in the book is like don't beat yourself up about being fake when you're when you're striving for change because in a way you're being true to true to yourself in some sense
0: yeah, I like that framing of it uh, because as I was reading that I, I, rem- I was just thinking about several uh, friends I've encountered in my life who also you know anytime somebody's uh, attempting to make a change, like let's say i'm I'm the person making the change, they would maybe interpret that as like uh, like a, you know uh, faking it till you make it or you' you're, you're uh, attempting something here that you shouldn't be attempting. you know what are you what are you doing here?
2: you know yeah, hey, you're like a fraud.
0: Yeah, and Mm -hmm. but I like that framing because I I feel like the people who say that you're not being authentic or you're being fake, if you or you may be being fake if you attempt to try personality change, Mm -hmm. I feel like it's people who haven't thought it through, which is why I like your explanation about, you know, becoming who uh, you want to be as well uh, or being true to yourself in that sense. and this is so yeah. nostalgic
2: because this brings me back to our second ever episode and the episode that we did with, with uh, William Irvin, who's a philosopher and who wrote uh, Siddhartha too, pretty much. And so we talked about literally becoming who you truly are and existentially speaking and going back all the way to Nietzsche, becoming who you truly are just literally fundamentally means becoming your potential self. Mm. Yeah. So it's so interesting that kind of people view it as a sort of dichotomy where it's either you're the person you are, or you're the person you're not and you're fake. Where again, going back to like philosophy, self-help psychology, the idea is to continue growing. And there's like this vast potential within you. And as you kind of actualize it a little bit more and more, you're actually becoming the person who you, let's say always were, you know, I guess in kind of romantic terms, even though obviously that's not true, but romantically speaking, it is the person you were always at least meant to be. So I've always liked that conception of it.
0: Yeah, and um, and Krishna yeah, I was wondering.
2: It, uh, I
0: mean, it, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Oh.
1: Oh, I was, I was just going to say. I mean, um, yeah, we, we have a bit of a delay. I think. Um, yeah, there's a lag. I was just going to say, yeah, it might, it might it might feel like faking a little bit at the beginning when you are trying to make changes in life, but uh, of course, if you stick at it, it, it becomes uh, it becomes a part of you, and you it it isn't fake anymore. So you're you're kind of self signaling you know, as you build a new identity, you actually, by making those, at the beginning, it will feel effortful. So it might feel less authentic at the beginning, but then you've got to get through that phase. And then through force of habit and persistence, you know, you're when you're actually walking the walk, do it, you know, and living as the the person you aspire to be, aspire to be, it becomes a reality so you're not you know and you're and you're signaling that to yourself you're signaling that to the people who know you and um it's not not fake anymore
2: what do you want to ask
0: oh right uh so uh, of the five um uh, pers- big big five personality traits what would you say is the most uh important uh, maybe in your opinion or or um according to research Well, like important to change well if um Mm, not important to like success well i mean okay in terms you could say in terms of success sure but i mean i don't want to frame it just as for success i mean um like well-being just overall well-being sure
1: uh well-being well probably conscientiousness and oh there is hard to pick it's hard to um Say, but I I think conscientiousness, well, is certainly probably the most important for things like um, career success and maybe health as well. Conscientiousness, there's a lot of of evidence suggests because people who are higher in conscientiousness tend to adopt healthier behaviours. You know, it's
2: like self-discipline.
1: Yeah, and they're less less inclined to smoke and drink drink to excess uh, and so on. But um, as I said before, neuroticism, you know, is obviously linked with the mental health problems at high level. So you have that one kicks in and um, extroversion, higher extroversion is like strong extroverts tend to be happier. So it depends what you mean by well-being, but yeah, strong extroverts tend to be happier because, well, they're more optimistic for a start. they tend to have, or goes without saying, more active social lives. And of course we know that for most people, um, you know, social relationships are very important. So yeah, so, so extroversion comes into play there. But uh, I mean, they, they all have a role in uh, different respects because for example, openness to experience high scores and openness to experience are at lower risk for uh, dementia. There's evidence to suggest that. Mm. Maybe because um, they tend to build up more cognitive reserve, perhaps. Um, and then an agreeability, um, I, I like trait agreeability because high scorers in that trait, you know, they, the research suggests one of the reasons why they are so um, warm and friendly and see the best in others is because they tend to avoid putting themselves into stressful situations or high conflict situations. So they kind of instinctively adopt that situation selection strategy that I mentioned before, they kind of do it by instinct. So, uh, Mm -hmm. if you want less stress in life, high agreeability is probably one to work on as well.
2: Interesting.
0: And and what I love about your book is, uh, one, the personality tests you can take in there to determine your, uh, where, where you are in each particular uh, trait. And then the other thing that I, I really love is you, you talk about scientifically sort of backed ways to, um, increase or, uh, for example, or in the case of neuroticism, how to reduce neuroticism, but also in cases of other traits like openness, agreeableness, conscientiousness, extraversion ways to, uh, increase that in yourself. And it's so uh, practical. And there, there are things that I read in your book that I found extremely valuable. Like, uh, for instance, um, uh, just just to just become more extroverted for instance uh, maybe habituating yourself if you're someone who's an introvert and um you tend to stay in and um you're uncomfortable in loud overwhelming sort of settings um a good way to overcome that as as obvious as it may seem but it's good to it's faking read this no no, no. faking uh, well either way it's, it, i mean that in a good way no, for sure. Uh, to uh, habituate yourself to those uncomfortable situations, like even if it feels uncomfortable, keep placing yourself there until it becomes something that's integrated into into your world, right? Mm-hmm. And I understand that's obvious, but it's so helpful the way you you frame it in your book. Uh, different things that you could sort of do to to help yourself in in these particular traits. And um, I don't know. I find it to be very practical.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I would also ask. Speaking oh. of like you know kind of. Oh, go ahead, Christian.
1: No, I was just going to say thank you. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that.
2: Of course. Yeah. And I know because obviously, you know, we're focusing um, really deeply on personality change, right? And how we can enact that and what we can expect. Uh, what are some of the downsides of personality change in terms of like our expectations, right? So, why should we be sort of hesitant about, especially, I know, obviously not this book, right? But there are some self help books that kind of, you know, make grandiose promises and kind of help the, their readers or whatnot foster or form like grandiose expectations, right? If I just do these things, all of a sudden I'm going to be a different person. So. What are the sort of, uh, I guess, maybe not drawbacks, but what are some of the points of hesitation or skepticism in terms of personality science and psychology? Like, where should we be a little bit more skeptical in which areas, or which, or you know, or rather, in terms of uh, which kind of premises should, or which premises should we be skeptical about in personality science?
1: Well, one reason I try to give lots of those kind of practical tips that uh, Alan was mentioning is because the uh, the research suggests. You know, you're not going to achieve personality change if you don't um, do anything differently, you, you you've right. <laughs> So it's definitely not going to be easy, uh, I would say it's unlikely to be easy if you want to if you want to make uh, significant changes to your traits. Um, it's going to take a lot of effort and dedication and you've got to start doing something differently. So if you if you just have the wish. To be, uh, you know, more conscientious or or more extroverted or whatever it might be, but you're not actually willing to do anything differently in your life. Uh, in fact, as a study came out, suggested if anything, you're going to end up um, kind of regressing, or you know, it's going to it's going to backfire. Your your desires to change are kind of kind of going to kind of backfire. You'll probably end up feeling uh, you've gone backwards if you don't do anything differently. Um, maybe out of frustration um, they weren't sure on the reasons but so yeah in terms of sort of cautions in this area is yeah I wouldn't believe anyone who tells you it's going to be easy Um, and just simply desiring change won't be enough obviously another thing is and with the last 18 months with COVID and what have you it's uh, I, I, you know everyone will be aware of this but we can and I'm very sensitive to it bringing out this book at this time I mean I wrote it before COVID, before COVID but we can be busy with um, working on our like mental strategies and our our, our plans you know for how we're going to live differently our lifestyle and so on And and then of course these life experiences can come along and just you know, like a huge wave crashing over us, and uh, can at least temporarily sweep away our efforts, and may, maybe to some extent make a mockery of our modest efforts that we we make. And so, I, I suppose humility is important, and uh, like that's something I rec- You know, I try and recognize in the book that um, personality change, positive personality change, is, a, is going to be a lifelong endeavor, and. <laughs> You, you might make some progress and then something bad might happen to you in life and you, you, know, you might go backwards um, and you, you, know, you just got to pick yourself up and dust yourself down afterwards and get, get back at it. And um, yeah, so it's more like a philosophy to live by, recognizing the malleability of personality and recognizing that the, 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 you know, personality is a process rather than something fixed um but yeah so Um, there's a few thoughts
2: yeah what I, i think and I think what we both respect about your work is the fact that it's not a sort of an aspect of fad psychology where it's not like, you know, this, uh, you know, 20, 30 page booklet on how to fix yourself. And so the idea here is that, you know, we're, we just time, right? We're in this process, not only for life, but on top of that, it's something that's going to kind of, um, that we're going to get back, we're going to get sort of sidetracked on. And then also we are going to backtrack on, at some point. And so the idea here is that, and I think this is like a focal point for our audience and most of the things that we talk about is that don't expect any of this stuff to happen overnight definitely not easy and definitely not overnight. So where I find like a lot of my patients struggle, especially in terms of like just the skills and, you know, CBT um, overall is a kind of a, as a kind of fundamental process, if you want to think of it that way, is they're like, well, you know what, how is it that I went backwards, right? How is it that, you know, I was doing so well for X amount of period. And now I find myself back to where I was before therapy. So I try to remind remind them to remind themselves is that you're actually not where you were before therapy, right? Because now you have these skills and these tools that you didn't have before. You might find it harder to use now, right? Because of these situations that are really overwhelming for you. Whereas maybe there was this period of your life where it wasn't so tough, but now, you know, you still have these skills and at some point down the line, you're going to be able to go back to what you've learned and to say, okay, now I can, I feel better and I can try to apply them at this particular juncture in my life. So again, what I really appreciate about this work is that it's not, you you know, it's not, it's not kind of snake oil salesmanship, right? We're not trying to tell our audience that like, oh, Hey, just read this book. And all of a sudden you're going to be a different person. So because like personalities are obviously um, to some extent, they, are fixed, right? And I think it's important to acknowledge that all of these things take time and effort. So if you're finding yourself getting discouraged after reading the book and feeling like, oh, well, you know, it's two, three months down the line, and I'm still not that different. The answer is actually you are, you are different, because you have a set of tools and a set of skills that even if you find it difficult to use at this particular point, somewhere down the line, you're going to be able to use them. And hopefully, if you're looking at kind of the bigger picture of your life, you see that you're actually making better choices for yourself, and hopefully for those around you too
1: yeah absolutely yeah i would second all that and you know um the more change that a person wants to achieve you know the the greater the effort they're going to need to put in so you've got to be realistic about how much you have invested so just doing a you know sitting in your armchair just maybe doing a few little mental exercises is not going to make a huge amount of difference but um being a bit more ambitious about, I don't know, forging new relationships, whether it's joining, you know, joining a new volunteering, at a new club, or, you know, joining a new uh, social group. Like, so for example, with extroversion, for example, I don't know if you've heard of Toastmasters or something like that, but I would say-
0: What's that, uh, the wine? um, What is it? It's it's, uh, people who uh, are wine enthusiasts, right? No,
1: Toastmasters is, uh, they give public speak, they kind of practice giving public, Speeches what? to each
2: other. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. On the
1: side as well. I anyway. know. Um, <laughs> yeah, they. They. Um, yeah, they kind of meet up in, in, uh, once a week or once or twice a week, and they kind of take turns at giving speeches to each other. And um, yeah, if you are like an extreme introvert and you really want to become more extroverted. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't rush into it straight away, but again, with all these kind of techniques and interventions, you can you can see it as a hierarchy of how serious do you want to get, you know? And you can begin small, begin small just by being a bit more friendly with the cashier at the uh, supermarket or whatever, but maybe have as your goal that when you build up some confidence, you're going to join something like Toastmasters and you're going to start giving public speeches. And, and you know, you, so I, I guess I'm just saying like, yeah, uh, echoing what you're saying about, um being realistic about amount of change and if you really want to make drastic change you're gonna you've got to be realistic about how much effort you've got to put in and and while i was saying you know we can get knocked sideways by life events i think one thing i thought i hoped would be useful in my book is just by being aware of how certain events might change you or the influence they might have on you at least by being more aware of that then you can take uh action afterwards to try and address it. So, um, for example, when you, if you have a relationship breakup, you know, you're, um, lonely, you know, you might be more lonely afterwards, for example, your, your introversion is likely to go up, your neuroticism is likely to go up. You don't have to be completely passive about that. You can take proact, start taking proactive steps to, you know, address, address that. So, um, hopefully, yeah, just being a bit more aware of some of these dy- personality dynamics is beneficial, hopefully.
2: Yeah.
0: And uh, also, I, I like that uh, there are certain um, tips you give in the book that somebody could implement right away. And it's it, it again, it's not a fast acting sort of um, cure all, but uh, there are things you can do right away that will start to make changes if, if you try it every day. Um, uh, yeah, I, I definitely also just being aware, uh, as, as you stated, is is important. I mean, there is something, you know, just just from the just from having this show and the different guests we have on and discussing uh, personality psych or just social psychology or uh, different facets of psychology. Yeah, of course, we, we kind of refresh ourselves with this uh, info um, every time we do one of these shows or we prepare for the show. But it's, it's so refreshing to just, I don't know, just to be presented. It, uh, you, there's something that you haven't seen in a while, no. right? Or something that you haven't read about in a while. Or there's something new and updated. Like your book is, is, is one of the is the most updated version of personality psych, in my opinion, at, at the moment. And uh, that, that's, uh, it feels good to review those kinds of things. And it, it keeps certain ideas fresh in your mind.
2: Yeah. And I like what you both of you said about awareness, which I think is super important, because like one of the fundamental aspects of CBT, which I love is the behavioral part where you're kind of going out into the world, and you're trying different things. But then also on top of that, right, a lot of clients come in when they're feeling depressed, because they feel like the locus of control is outside of themselves, where they feel like, oh, well, you know, life is happening to me, there's nothing that I can actually do. And so um, I think we talked about this at some point on the show. I don't remember exactly the episode. But remember what we talked about, like going outside and sort of presenting yourself differently and seeing how it affects you?
0: Uh, Yeah, essentially, um, if you do something different, if you think about it like a mathematics equation, um, you you change, let's say it's uh, the value of X changes, you you try some different behavior, you you do something different, different behavior, present yourself differently, no matter what, whatever result you will have from doing that will be something different. Uh, that kind of thing you're Yeah, yeah. To. and
2: then it's like, so what we talked about was essentially if like you're thinking that, well, you know, I'm inherently unlikable and it doesn't really matter what I do. Obviously you're going off into the world and you're kind of being an asshole probably or at least standoffish and people are reacting to you in a certain way and you're thinking, well, you don't think this is inevitable. Like, of course they're going to react to me that way. So why I love like behaviorism is because the idea is like, well, let's try an experiment. Let's see if you're actually nice. If you ask a person questions, if you ask them about where do they go to school, where do they go to work, right? Oh, uh, what is it? that their hobbies are, their interests are. What if you're just like nice to the cashier? What if you're just like, hey, you know, have a good day or, you know, like, thanks so much for helping me or whatever it is. And then you see that those behaviors have significant changes in your kind of, um, I don't know, like, let's say this, the kind of spectrum of your everyday life. And then all of a sudden you're thinking to yourself, wow, maybe it's not that I'm inherently unlovable. Maybe it's just that if I do things a little bit differently, I'll get different responses from the environment. And all of a sudden the locus of control kind of shifts back to you.
0: There's that and there's also, if you have a belief that people are generally unkind, right, or they're not going to be friendly, then of course, anything that comes uh, from that base belief, any actions, behaviors, thoughts, they're going to be congruent to that. And right. you're also going to look for evidence of that out in the real world. So but it, just being aware of something as simple as just the concept of projection. Yeah, if you if you're if you're aware that you're projecting uh, your view onto others, I suppose even awareness of that could reduce that um, that uh, foundation of that belief because I, I don't know how easy it is to tell someone oh uh, just believe that people are friendly i i could do no that but you can experiment. experiment you can experiment sure, sure. Mm-hmm. you could do that as an experiment but i i feel bad sometimes advising that to someone because they're like oh just believe everyone is yeah friendly. you don't have to you don't have to you believe
2: you could just like try yeah. out a different set of behaviors just to see what will happen but it again. but it
0: in my experience it does work i'm just very careful about you know, putting that out there depends, you know. yeah.
2: Especially. And I would also add to that, just like in terms of, since we're talking about beliefs. So was something uh, one of my clients once told me, she said, well, you know, I like, I criticized one of my friends and I told her, well, you know, when you do this thing, it really upsets me. And so her response was, she said, well, that's my personality. I can't change that. <laughs> and I was like, wait, no, that's not true. So it's like really interesting sometimes when it comes to kind of people's core beliefs about themselves, how they think, well, you know, if somebody criticizes me, they're really attacking me, right? They're attacking me fundamentally. Again, going back to the belief of like, I'm unlikable, I'm whatever, right? The idea is like, well, I can't change. Like, this is just a part of who I am. So what I love about your work, Christian, is that you show like, no, that's, that's not true. Even if you're acting like an asshole in this situation, and you're kind of being a jerk in one particular moment, you can try out new things and see that, you know, kind of people will have different responses to you than the older ones. So, but it's so interesting how sometimes people will give you these remarks, and they will say something like, well, like, what do you want me to do about it? This is just who I am. I can't do anything.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you're right. There's nothing more powerful is there than going out and sort of experimenting and getting real life feedback. And there's some really nice research. Um, I can't remember who did it, but, uh, they like went on commuter trains and they tried out talking to strangers and, uh, you know, on these trains, like breaking the, the normal social norms around no one speaks to anyone. Um, you know, and people, the reception they got was so positive and, uh, people enjoyed making this uh, small talk with strangers much more than they thought they would and the reception they got was much friendlier than they thought, You know, a bit like you, you were saying, Alan, just now. Um, and yeah, in terms of it kind of recognizing situational influences as well on behavior, because yeah, I think I've got, I've got a chapter on um, how our traits sort of are temporarily affected by the situations we find ourselves in. And um, I think we maybe underestimate that a lot of the time you know, so something I'd sometimes I'd tell myself, you know, if you walk, walk past someone in the street or one of your neighbors and they they don't really say hello to you, uh, you know, they're not, not not very friendly. You know, I try and remind myself sometimes that maybe, they're, they're, maybe they've they maybe got a hangover or maybe, you know, uh, for all I know, they're having a terrible day and what have you. So we, yeah, we we tend to um, read too much into some of these behaviors don't we that they're reflecting some kind of core personality rather than just being um to do with the current situation or someone's mood or their how tired they are or what have you
2: yeah and i found that like i know this is such a simple thing but like i found that when i actually ask people how they're doing like let's say i look them at like i look at them in the eye and i look at them directly and just some random person i don't know let's say I'm going to get like a vaccine shot or whatever. And, you know, there's a doctor or a nurse or whomever. And I like literally look at them and they say, how are you doing? They'll actually have a full blown conversation with me as opposed to when I just say hello or something or hi or what's up or whatever. And I like, that's where I leave it. They won't talk to me. They won't say anything. I guess the interpretation is, well, this person's not really interested in having a conversation. So yeah, my, my big takeaway from your work is that we have a lot more control than we actually think we have. But again, it's easy to see kind of oneself as though you're sort of tossed around in the world and you're just sort of here on, you know, this kind of big rock and you don't really have much sort of effect or importance in, you know, kind of your day-to-day life. So, all right. So Christian, before we wrap up, is there any sort of final takeaway that you hope our audience or did you want our audience to have? Like what would be sort of, um, I mean, I know this is kind of a broad question. So if, you know, forgive me for asking, but what would you say is one of the most important aspects of your work or what would you want the audience to know most about it?
1: I guess mostly that they they do have the potential to change um that that's what i wanted to look into when i started writing the book i think um at at different times in my life i suppose i've had a few occasions where people have made assumptions about me you know like are you you know either you are you won't want to do that christian you're not that kind of person or or you won't be able to do that christian you know it's not you're not that kind of personality or what have you and i i've never really liked that kind of thing i've never liked being boxed in and you know um, and that that's partly what motivated me to go away and look at the research and the research suggests personality is dynamic it's not a myth as some would say you know it's a real genuine concept there is this relative stability you know relative stability and what have you it, it is meaningful uh, but there is definitely uh, malleability in personality and we can't you know there's so much evidence both research evidence and anecdotal stories of people's lives people who have Manage to enact positive change in their lives by you know changing their goals, uh, changing their value, living more in line with their true values, and self educating as well. As it often seems to be very important in the anecdotes I uncovered. Uh, reading a lot, you know, um, reading widely, uh, yeah, educating oneself. And so, I, I hope it's an optimistic message. Um, that it, yeah, like as you say, we can take some some control. And positive change is, is, within our, is, is within our reach, you know, within reason, not, it's not easy
2: and what have you, but it's, it's possible. I love that. All right, Alan, before we wrap up, final questions?
0: Oh, uh, yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, uh, follow your work, uh, where could we find you?
1: Uh, well, my, de- my day job is I'm, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm deputy editor of uh, Psyche magazine. That's psyche.co is the uh, web address. So I, I edit a lot and commission a lot of articles there. I, I write a few as well, uh, occasionally. And I am a psych writer on Twitter. So it's psych underscore writer on Twitter. I do a little bit of freelance writing here and there and uh, on psychology and neuroscience. Um, yeah, so that's it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on, Christian. Thank this was so super much. insightful.
1: Oh, I I really enjoyed it. I really appreciate having the chance to chat to you. And it it was a lot of fun. Thank you.
2: Absolutely, man. We'll talk to you soon. Take care.